At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oils and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us, both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. We're traveling through parables. We have been, and specifically right now, not just parables, but the kingdom of heaven is like. Isn't that amazing? That still blows my mind that God would come on the earth and say, let me tell you, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes on. Some of it's pretty sobering. I mean, the kingdom of heaven is citizenship or refusal into the kingdom because of what you are. The kingdom of heaven is citizenship based on your commitment that you're willing to make. The kingdom of heaven is citizenship to those who are transformed. The kingdom of heaven is citizenship based on the gifting God gives you and how you use it. The kingdom of heaven is citizenship based on how faithful you remain to the gifting and purpose God has given you. Acts 20.24 says this, My only aim is to finish the race. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. We're, uh, in this parable, we're joining a wedding. We're going to a, an ancient Jewish wedding. Uh, and in the parable known as the parable of the ten virgins, we find it in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. In your bulletins, you get all kinds of uh, uh, verses there to reference, including this one. There are a few things to note about this parable, a little different, before we zero in on exactly what we want to get at today. First, the parable doesn't make full sense to you unless you understand the culture from which it's coming. This is a deep dive into everyday ancient Jewish culture. Um, so that's why on the Friday word for the week that you can get online at the, just right on the website on the media page, uh, it's given over totally to dealing with the culture because we need to see it from that side. Second, this parable doesn't start with the kingdom of heaven is like, but the kingdom of heaven will be like. The kingdom of heaven will be like. So it is prophetic in its tone, but that doesn't mean it's not um, something where we are right now. As a matter of fact, what it's saying is, depending on what you're doing now, depending on where you are in your readiness and preparation and the things talked about here, this will be the outcome. 
and you'll be on the good side of it or the bad side of it, but this is what will happen. The outcome will be you on one side of that festive door or on the other side. It'll be you inside for the celebration or you outside in the cold and dark. It'll be uh, a factor that'll go through your life. It's, it's what Jesus has already told us and then balancing out those parables as we keep going. Thirdly, the, the people in this parable are not outsiders to the faith. Keep this in mind. We're not talking about unbelievers here at all. Bridesmaids. Most of the ladies in here have been married. I think just about all, probably now. Anyone who's not married just went to children's church. But in your marriage, you, uh, when you had your ceremony, chances are you had bridesmaids. Did you just pick anybody at random or were you very selective on who you had as your bridesmaids? Those are inside people, aren't they? Those are the friends. Those are the people you're counting on. So we have to, to, to realize, starting with this point, is that these are honored insiders in this parable. Is it possible to be an honored insider and actually be left out of the kingdom of heaven? According to this parable, it is. It is possible. According to Jesus, it is. So the more we understand of the background, the more we'll understand how this happens or you make sure it doesn't happen. What's the deciding factor in this parable? It's interesting. It's not about people's faith or their lack of faith. It's, it's not even about whether they're obedient or rebellious. It comes down to this, whether they are foolish or wise. Foolish or wise. Starts getting kind of thick here because it's saying you can be an honored insider, but if you are foolish, you can blow your citizenship. Foolish. Well, does that mean the same thing in the original Greek? Moras. Well, it can mean dull or stupid. I know we've all done things and we go, man, that was stupid. But when we say that, we're not talking about raw intelligence, are, are we? We're saying we have did something we should have known better. And in this case, that's exactly the word, uh, the way it plays out. It's not in a sense of you're stupid. Lack of intelligence keeps no one out of heaven. You can be an IQ of 25 or 225. It doesn't keep you out of heaven. Intelligence in itself is not it. The word moras, the foolishness that they're talking about here, if you looked up the definition right out of what they say this means, it means without learning or training. Without learning or training. Fits really well with uh, Mark's uh, Sunday school this morning. He went in very much, I appreciated that. Mark went very much in depth on here are some tools because you need to know what the word says. If you're ignorant of the word, how can you follow it? So it can be lack of learning or training. It can mean an attitude or action of negligence. It can by, uh, by uh, the best def definition who that fits here is without forethought, without forethought, uh, not considering the uh, consequences. And this is all about preparation and that's preparation is forethought, isn't it? You're not worried about the outcome so you don't prepare. 
That's what we find as a central point in here. Imprudent, not giving any thought to the consequences. Not giving any thought to the consequences. The thrust of this parable, uh, this parable, really, you know, it should, even as believers, this should really stop and give you pause on what's going on. You can be a, a believer. You can be an intelligent believer. You can be a gifted believer. You can even be a busy believer. But if foolishness plays a part, then you can also be a salvation-losing believer. How does it work that we're not prepared or we don't consider the consequences? How does that work? One example might be from James. James would resonate with this. He says, the tongue is a fire. Saying things and giving no heed to the consequences. Man, you say something, you can't take the words back, can you? Consequences on how you prepare for things. Does, does Jesus agree with James? Matthew 5.22. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. What's really going on there in a New Testament sense is this, is that you can be busy, I can be busy in a ministry. And if I know that somebody has something legitimately against me or that I have in some way uh, done wrong, doesn't matter how busy I stay in my ministry until I correct that wrong. I'm supposed to go do that. If I don't, then I'm a, a, a moras. I am fooling myself. Not lazy, not rebellious, not unbelieving, simply foolish. This parable that we're reading, we often say this in understanding, there's, there's a few rules that we, uh, of study that work. One is who's saying it, who are they saying it to, and what's the context. That definitely fits here. But also when you read a passage, what's the big story before and after that passage? And if we look at this passage in uh, Matthew 25, the passage before it, is about nobody knows when Christ is returning. And the passage after it is about the servants who uh, are invested or trusted with the master's uh, goal to invest, and some do well and some do not. And right in the middle between this don't know when he's coming and you better be doing what you're supposed to do, sits this parable of preparation. You better be prepared, better be prepared for when the master returns. And the pivotal point on you being prepared is going to be whether you are foolish or you are wise. Jesus sets up the whole mental picture with a wedding and it's a beautiful fit. And it was crystal clear to the original listeners of this they were living this type of thing every day. For us, we've got to stretch and look back a bit to see where they're coming from. But it's worth doing it so we can understand totally. 
So there's two things that set this up. One is how a wedding worked in ancient Israel. And the second thing is how you use a torch. Just curious, how many people here, not a lighter, but have used a torch sometime in their life? Okay, there's, there's me and Steve and Mark and Mike back there, and none of us have burn marks, so I think we must have done fairly well. We didn't burn ourselves up. But a torch is a different type of tool. Um, an ancient torch is kind of a different type of tool. And in the torch itself, that's why I said we left understanding uh, the cultural side of it to the, the, the webcast on Friday. You get that part there because what I'd like to do today is concentrate from the point of this whole thing with the torch. We're looking at fire and light as it was in the time of Christ. Now, the same word was used, lampos, which could mean a um, small lamp that had an oil reservoir from which there was a wick and it would be a small flame used indoors. Outdoors, they would use this bad boy. This is torch. Lampos actually means torch. A torch would look like this, stick about this long wrapped in a, a gauze type membrane on the end and the idea wasn't to burn the gauze it was to have something to soak the fuel that could then be used to uh, burn and produce uh, fire and light um, so what we've done is we've soaked this gauze and what they would have most naturally which would be olive oil the olive oil they used was an efficient burning. It has something like 99% efficient. So when they lit something like this, a 15 minute burn per um, uh, torch soaking. And when they say trim their torches or trim their lamps, this is what they were talking to, soaked uh, and then lit. And the idea is to burn the fuel, as we say, not so much the material that it's on. There we go. So they would have a torch like this. And this torch, if it was made to spec, would burn for about 15 minutes, at which time I would need uh, to re-soak it and light it again. Now you can see the flame burning off the olive oil and small amount of gasoline in the mix. Now there's something else I'd like to show you here. One is, <laughs> Proving this is why even in a wind, you're not going to put out a torch. It's not going to happen. So the bridesmaids carrying their torches, of course, it would be like this. And that's a fair amount of light. I mean, even though it's not dark, you can see the light. But I have my pot of water here. Let me put this out. Now, if you look at this, this is what I'm getting at. Very little of the gauze is burnt. It's scorched, of course, because of the fuel. Very little of the actual gauze is burnt. That's the idea with an ancient torch, not to burn your material, but to burn the fuel in which it is soaked. 15 minutes, and uh, by that time, you better be soaking it again, or you'll end up just ruining your torch. So that's how it worked. And of course, where oil 
is a um, symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. When you read about torches in the Bible, well, you can probably for yourself uh, see how that uh, might cross over in its uh, symbolism. But for now, just seeing how a torch works, see very little burn of the material, big flame all from the fuel. Ancient torch. So there we go. There's a uh, torch in the, in the burning. Um, and you can gather that you see where if you were bringing a torch and you had this 15 minute uh, window, uh, you would then need oil to do it. So you would bring some type of jar and you would have it with whatever, olive oil or whatever, and then when you soaked and then you would reignite. Once again, there it is, live and in person, the ancient torch. And as I said, uh, you can see that uh, there's charring on it, but the material, gauze. Now, they used a gauze membrane, so the best I could come up with is medical gauze. Did pretty well. Something that absorbs. So here's what's going on. You have your friends, these ladies who are your best friends, the wedding is going on. It's a big deal to have a wedding going on in a small village. That's like one of the big events of the day. There's the rock concert of the year going on. You have your friends. Now, when they did this, they would take the long way. Now, I'm going to get into all the cultural side of it. You can, you can just watch the webcast on that. But they would take a procession that could be up to three hours walking the long way from where the bride lived to where the groom built the new home. Bridesmaids in front, burning their torches. Three hours, you get 15 minutes to a burn. And then if you're not resoaking, you end up ruining your torch. So that comes out to on a procession, you may need to resoak your torch a dozen times. It'll take 12 times in there. So you can see the idea of not having the oil is not just a small afterthought. I mean, it was a major faux pas. So there they are doing this, and some of them were wise enough. They made sure they had that jar of oil. And then how morose, how foolish would you have to be to say, ah, I'm going to need 12 soakings on this this procession, but I forgot to buy any extra oil. It's a real, real faux pas going on here, a real negligence. And with the olive oil that they had in there, what is oil the symbol of in scripture? Pop quiz. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So you see how this is putting together. When you forget the oil, you forget the Holy Spirit. If we come in here and we do all kinds of really neat, slick things, and we forget to invite the Holy Spirit, the torch is not going to burn very well. We're not going to have much flame in here. And you have the bride waiting for the groom that we're not sure when he's going to show up. There's a reason behind that culturally too. Just happens to fit really well. The bride come, or the groom coming for the bride represents what? Second pop quiz. Uncertain. Huh? 
say, yeah, the church is the bride, the second coming, right? That's what we're, we're looking at here. So consider where you're going with this. You have these bridesmaids who are honored servants in this, messing up the second coming is basically, it's very, it's enough to make one wince inwardly, both culturally and theologically. But that's what we're talking about here. You need the oil on that torch. So how does the ancient torch serve as a clue? Because the whole thing about this is it's horrible to be foolish. It's lethal to be foolish. So how do you not be foolish? And it comes down to the stuff we've been talking about with oil and absorbing oil into the torch. This is what the whole anticipation and uh, preparation is all about. As a matter of fact, this isn't even new. This before Jesus, there was John the Baptist preparing the way. What did John say way early in Matthew? Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now look what follows. His winnowing fork. Do we understand what a winnowing fork is? Those like Paula's nodding because maybe she did old style wheat sifting. You know, the idea of the fork and you threw it up in the air and the chaff would blow and the grain would fall. That's a winning, winnowing fork separates the wheat from the chaff. The winning, winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Not the fire of the Holy Spirit, another fire. The point with the winnowing fork comes down to this, who is foolish and who is wise. Every parable we've visited so far in this, the kingdom of heaven is like, dealt with a winnowing fork to some degree. You were the wheat or the tear, the catfish or the tilapia. You were the guy who understood the value of the pearl or you didn't. We're the real deal or we're a mere facsimile. It's who you are, who you are. What makes the difference here, what makes the difference is, are you not believing, not that you want a torch, but is your torch soaked in the Holy Spirit? Is your torch, are you soaked in the oil? of the Holy Spirit. Salvation depends on readiness. There's the parable. That's the main thrust of the parable. Salvation depends on readiness. And readiness depends on saturation. Wow. If I could take one word for you to go up with today, it would be the word saturation. It would be that word. Saturation is when you are soaked in God. If this is you, if this is your mind, if this is your soul, and this is God in form, and this is you soaking, how do we do this? How do we soak? 
what happens if we do, what happens if we don't. To be saturated takes time. I'm sure just about everybody in here has marinated something. Chicken, steak, takes time, doesn't it? You make your marinade, you put it in whatever, and then you put it in the fridge for 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever it is, but it takes time. Do you think if you are the fabric of the torch, do you think it takes anything less than time to saturate the fabric of your character? First thing it takes is time. You can't get away from that. It takes time in his fire. You know, it's amazing. Anybody who has walked with the Lord for any length of time knows this pattern. Somebody finds the Lord, the new Christian, who all of a sudden discovers what it is. And they want to tell everybody. They're like a Roman candle, man. They're just going off. The sparks are everywhere. And then us old timers, we're like, well, that's nice, but, you know, wait until you get rejected for trying to share the Lord or wait until you come up against that uh, professing Christian with a major flaw who kind of knocks you down a peg or something to that effect. And so we just happen to say, you know, as a long going Christian, I need to uh, take your oil here and just douse a little bit of water on it just to balance it out you know you don't want to be burning too hot too high funny how we do that but the truth is if we look at the parable we're supposed to be burning hot and high that that's the natural course of things that's what we do when we're saturated we burn in that way we need time we need time in his presence the Holy Spirit is a person. That's why you talk to him. That's why he's referred to as he. And so we have time in prayer. Secret on prayer. Prayer is a whole lot less of you talking to God and God talking to you. A whole lot less of you trying to get a hold of God and letting God get a hold of you. Without prayer... Without prayer, you are blind. In the spiritual sense, you and I are blind. Without prayer, without letting God get a hold of you, you don't know what he's doing. You won't recognize what he's doing. You won't appreciate what he's already done. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes in a church, you could talk to two people in the same fellowship and one is going, oh, you wouldn't believe what God has done in here. And you talk to someone else and it's like, eh, uh, yeah, doors are still open anyway. And if you don't know what God has done and you don't know what he's doing now, how can you know what he will do? Somebody brought up that wonderful study again not too long ago, the Blackaby Experiencing God. And that is all about being where God is working. Not us doing things, but being where God is working. Prayer allows us to do that. I imagine most of you, I'm surprised people aren't just rolling their eyes in here, because if it's 
Steve or me or somebody gets up who will go, man, you won't believe what happened from chapel prayer all the way to the sermon, how things went together. Well, guess what? It happened again today. The same all the way through. Because prayer is where God gets a hold of you. And then you see where he's working. So do you see what we're saying about this type of prayer? If we don't have this type of prayer in our life, spiritually speaking, you have just poked your own eyes out. You can't see what God's doing. So you need time, but you need time in the presence. You need the face-to-face -face with God. You need time in His Word. Here's a human condition. Our minds are where our bodies are. Our minds are where our bodies are. It's where we are in our ears, in our eyes, and what's currently going on around us. Simple test, and every one of us have been through this. Have you ever, you know, for whatever reason, life, vacation, whatever's going on, not been into some type of worship or church for, say, two, three weeks? You ever notice what your flame is like at the end of those three weeks as maybe compared to before that? It doesn't take long for us to start going out a little bit, does it? We need time in his word. We need time with him in our mind. I think, you know, since I was a Christian, people have been saying things like that to me. You know, that's what you expect pastors to say. But long before I was a pastor, <coughs> excuse me, there was something that happened that brought this home to me. And I was working in the lab. I was working in urology. You can guess what I was working with. <laughs> <laughs> Not very inspiring job. But I was in the uh, lab pretty much by myself with a radio, and there just happened to be some good Christian stations around. And I found myself listening to sermons and studies, and one after the other, because it was a night job too. So I was there uh, hearing, you know, nice hearing somebody say something. Um, hearing these lessons, this, my mind became saturated with the lessons I was hearing. And even though the job wasn't all that inspiring, the saturation made me grow. You have to be saturated in his word. You have to be saturated in that way. And in his word, um, you know, it, it can work in a lot of ways. I mean, it can be some of us are podcasters. We like to listen to things on a podcast, some of us are readers, we like to read. The big thing is allowing the truth to get inside you, allowing there be this change to happen within you, taking in what you're hearing. And no judgment on this, just basic reality. It could be exercise, it could be anything, but take any given hour of the day if in that hour you are doing something else, maybe you have to be. But that's one hour less that you spent saturating your torch. There are 168 hours in a week. How many of the hours have we given to saturation? There are 730 hours in a month. How many of those hours go to saturating there are 8,760 hours in a year. How many of those hours go to saturating? 
there are 692,040 hours in the average human life. How many of those go to soaking in God? Time. Time. And then there's time resting in the Lord. Here's something I've thought is, is an interesting theory that struck me anyway, is it's a lot of what we do in church is volunteer. So we mobilize ourselves purely on the cause. And mobilizing Christians is pretty tough, especially in the Western world, pretty tough. But you know, here's a theory. One of the reasons we have such a problem mobilizing in God's work is because we haven't learned how to rest in God. Sabbath, rest. Sabbath, rest. So what is that? What is Sabbath rest? Is it resting from your usual labors? Yep, definitely sets the scene for it. You don't do what you usually do the rest of the week. That's part of it. But that's setting the scene. It's not really resting in the Lord. Is it doing something you really like to do? The football game is on today. Sabbath rest with the TV. I heard that, that whisper. I didn't catch it all, but it, it, must, it was good. I could tell. I just have that instinct. The truth of it is, is that it's good to have those interests. Everybody should have these interests. But no, it really can't be called rest in the Lord. How about this? There you are, resting in church. Some of you are nicely resting your eyes in church. I know you're in, in a state of reflection, so that's okay. But is that Sabbath rest? Well, I mean, maybe it's part of it. In, but if it's simply a case of, well, I went to church, I can check off that box, there's Sabbath rest and on to the next thing. Not really so. Sabbath rest comes down to this. It is a way in which you are soaking the torch. In some way, you are getting more fuel onto that material, that fabric of your life. Resting in the Lord, it may start with this, is giving yourself permission to rest. Western culture, we're so terrible at this. I must be doing something all the time or I'm lazy or I'm being unproductive. Resting in the Lord sometimes means resting. Emotionally inside and outside. And it's resting but while you're meeting with the person of God, let me ask you, what do you do to get into God's presence? Not in here. I mean, when you're out there. It can be some very simple things. It doesn't have to necessarily be on your knees somewhere, although kneeling in prayer is a great thing. For you, it might be out on a walk. It might be listening to... Um, I appreciated this too, Mark, from you. You said not all study Bibles are created equal, as there is good material and bad material out there. But it could be spending time listening to some good material. How do you know it's good material? Well, I tend to agree with Mark. He said, well, you start by, you've got to read the Bible in the first place, so you know what you're reading about. So you know what you're listening about. But there are some ways 
Uh, it might be just getting yourself really quiet and letting your mind go to where the Lord is and seeing what he has to say. There's a lot of ways that you can soak up. But Sabbath rest is this. This is Sabbath rest. There is an oil in which you are saturating yourself. And in that saturation, you'll be ready to burn. Not you, but actually the fuel, the oil will burn for you. The message of the torch, the principle, like we said, is really simple. Saturated. It's not really burning the material. It's burning the fuel on the material. The fuel is designed to burn. The oil, the Holy Spirit, is designed to be the flame and the light, not you. Not you. What's foolishness? And who hasn't been foolish at some season of their life? It's mixing up what is supposed to burn. Is it the material, which is your human effort? Or is it the oil in which you must be saturated? We know that it's the oil. What happens if you let the oil burn dry? What comes after that? Well, then there's nothing left for the flame but the material. And you end up destroying your torch because you burn the very thing that should have been soaking up the oil. What a mess we make when we try and take God's place in, in our lives on our torches. The outcome is inevitable, isn't it? We burn out. Burn out. It's as simple as that. No oil on the torch. We suffer the pain of trying to be the flame. We are meant for soaking, not for burning. We light up the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our own effort. If we burn dry, the material burns. And there isn't anything left to even soak it up. You know, it'd be all over if we did that to our torches, but there's great news concerning God in the torch, which is your soul and mind and life. God's not only in the torch making business and the torch burning business, he's in the torch repairing business. Scripture has thousands of years of telling us that Psalms 51.10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Isaiah those who hope to the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Jeremiah, heal me, Lord. Heal my torch and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. 
Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Saturation. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Huh. We know the historical side of this, but how many people even in sitting in here are captive by something? Captive by something. First John into the New Testament and his commands are not burden, burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Wow. Torch. This is me. This is you. What kind of torch are we in here this morning? Some of us, maybe we're burning the flame the way it should be burned. Man, we are saturated. Amen. Some of us are a little on the ragged side. Man, life has been raining on our torch and it's, it's just getting kind of tough. Some of us have let that 15 minutes elapse and we're starting to burn out. We're starting to burn the material instead of the oil. There's a lot of ways we need, can need repairs on the torch. This morning, everyone in here is a torch. A lot of us need some repair.